If you have a Bible, let's turn in it together to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to finish our time in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 will be our text as we look at suffering as Christians and what it means to have confidence in the midst of it. Uh, I'm going to read this in its entirety for us, and then we'll unpack what God's Word has to say to us together. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, knowledge is power, they say. Knowledge is power. Many of our high school students are experiencing this right now as the season of ACTs and SATs are coming upon you. Many of you are busy taking prep tests in order to empower you with the knowledge of what the real test will look like. You want to know that you know how it's designed and what information will be contained on it, uh, so that way you know with assurance and confidence that you can handle well and even do well on such tests. That's what confidence-building exercises are about. They equip you. And knowledge, in this case, equips you with confidence on the day of the real test. Now, there's uh, other situations that some of us have faced in the past uh, that give us no confidence whatsoever. I'll share a, <clears throat> a brief story about a time when I was in Korea in 2002. And uh, uh, when you're in Korea, you're in the mountains. And so a lot of what the Korean military does is they do uh, mountain training, rappelling and rock climbing and stuff like that. And now in the States, when you rappel, our rappel towers, military rappel towers are like 60 feet tall, and you rappel backside first. You kind of lean back into the seat and you walk down. Uh, mountains in Korea are much taller than that, in the range of like 100, 120, 140 feet, and they go forward, what they call Aussie rappelling. So you walk, you just kind of walk over the edge and walk down face forward. Now, one of the things that we do, because we're very safety conscious in our culture, is that if a rope that's used for rappelling is on the ground and someone steps on it, it gets thrown in the trash. Because stepping on the rope expands the fibers, sand gets in, it closes on the sand, and now there's friction, there's uh, uh, irritation within the rope that causes it to no longer be trustworthy for rappelling. This is a practice the South Koreans are unfamiliar with. They leave their ropes out in the weather, I suppose, until somebody breaks it. Uh, best I could tell, the rope that I used to rappel off this giant mountain was, I don't know, two, three hundred years old <laughs> from the looks of it. Uh, it was just this frayed, worn out uh, it looked like a vine from the jungle, and here I am with a kit on, getting ready to go face first over this mountain. 
and this delightful young uh, Korean soldier uh, was standing there. He was the safety instructor, and he was ensuring that I was hooked into my carabiner and my harness and all that was secure. And I looked at him, and the language barrier was obvious, and I pointed at the rope and went, like that? Like, really? And this is what he does. All 85 pounds of him, picks it up, tugs on it, and goes, it's good. (laughs) So this instilled no confidence whatsoever in what I was about to endure. But there is a good confidence that we can have in the face of the difficulties that we will endure in this life. And that's what Peter aims to show us in this text. What it means to have good confidence, to be well equipped for suffering and trials. Trials and suffering will come in the Christian life, won't they? And the question for us to ask ourselves is, do we have confidence in the God who is sovereign over every situation, over every trial? Are we equipped for those difficult seasons and difficult situations and difficult circumstances which are sure to come? And so Peter here in these last verses of chapter 4 wants to help us develop a biblical theology of Christian suffering so that when we face it, and we will, we can be confident in the midst of it. And so this morning I want us to see five aspects of Christian suffering that we need to understand from this text. Number one, the reality of Christian suffering. Number two, we'll think about the rationale behind our Christian suffering. And then number three, rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Number four, Peter explains what are the right reasons for suffering. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, how do we find rest in Christian suffering? Well, as one theologian has put it, if you haven't suffered yet, you simply haven't lived long enough. Suffering is a reality we all face. And Peter is dealing with it here in this text. Now, knowing that there are here probably people who are not Christians, I should say this very plainly. It's obvious to all of us, suffering affects everybody, Christian or otherwise. You know it and I know it. It's undisputable. It's experientially true. We know that suffering is a reality that all people will face in one way or another. It's the result of living in a sin-cursed and fallen world. Our bodies decay, relationships break, money runs out, strength runs out, difficulties happen, and we all face suffering. Now, we happen to live in a fairly soft age, and some of what we consider suffering probably wouldn't have passed as suffering in generations gone past. And so when I say suffering, I'm not talking about slow internet or high gas prices or broken air conditioning or, in our case this morning, broken heat. When I say suffering, I'm talking about the grief and pain and sickness and loss and persecution that Christians experience for their faith. Peter is not primarily concerned here with suffering in general, and that's important to understand. We acknowledge that suffering in general is a reality, but Peter here is writing to Christians, and he's not dealing with suffering in general. The Bible deals with that elsewhere. That's why the book of Job is 42 chapters long, because suffering in general is a reality for all people. Peter here is dealing with Christians who are suffering for their faith, and he's speaking to them, to you, about the confidence you can have in the midst of it. Think about what the last few chapters have dealt with. Christian servants suffering unjustly under harsh masters. Christian citizens suffering unjustly under the rule of antagonistic or dictatorial governments. 
even Christian spouses, wives in particular, suffering in light of being married to someone who is not a Christian. Peter's talking to Christians, but that doesn't mean there isn't something here for everyone, for both the Christian and the unbeliever. And so if you are not a Christian, I do want to encourage you to stay with us as we work through this text. There's something coming in the middle of this text that's very, very important for you in light of suffering that we all experience. Well, look at verse 12 with me. Peter begins, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, Two things right off the bat should jump off the page to us as being noteworthy. First of all, Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when fiery trials come your way for your faith. The Bible tells us that to identify with Christ is to suffer. Therefore, we should not be surprised when Christian suffering comes upon us. Rather, we should be surprised if we don't experience any suffering in this life for Christ's sake. If we're not suffering as Christians, could it be that perhaps we're more like the world than we are like Christ? Why aren't we experiencing more suffering? Of course, God in His providence and common grace restrains evil, and so we don't experience all the suffering we could. Not every Christian group or church or people is going to experience life like they do in North Korea, for example, and other places where just being a Christian can cost you your life. But why aren't we experiencing hardly any suffering as Christians. Could it be that we're less like Christ than we think we are? Now, notice the contrast that's being painted here. Look back at verse 4 with me. If you remember from last week, Peter says to the Christians, stop doing the things that the Gentiles do. You've done enough of that already in your former life. Put that away, all of these things that he lists, uh, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and so forth. And he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you no longer act like that. And then here in verse 12, he says, but you shouldn't be surprised when you experience suffering. How strange then is it that for most Christians, we are surprised when we suffer and the world isn't surprised by how we act. Isn't it striking to you that the world is not as surprised by our behavior as perhaps it should be? Does that mean maybe that we are more like them than we are like Christ? And isn't it surprising to you that so many Christians act so shocked when they experience suffering? Could it be that we're more like the world than we are like Christ? It's remarkable that many Christians find themselves questioning God when suffering comes their way, as though surprised like some strange thing were happening. Where are you, they ask. Why are you allowing this to happen to me, they say. But Peter warns us here that suffering as Christians is a reality for us. It shouldn't surprise us. We suffer against Satan's continuing buffets and temptations. We suffer by way of persecution for our faith. We suffer life and pain in a fallen world, and we shouldn't be surprised. But often we are. It's part of being a Christian. I wonder, and ask yourself this, I wonder if one of the reasons that we are so surprised when suffering comes our way is because deep down inside, we believe that we deserve to have it better than Jesus did. Deep down, we believe that we deserve to have easier, more comfortable, more well-appointed, safer, better lives than Jesus did. 
He addresses this, doesn't he? Is a servant greater than his master? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they don't hate you, it could be because you're not aligned with me. As one hymn writer said, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Boy, we love easy, comfortable, cushy, well-appointed, air-conditioned, padded bank account, retired lives, don't we? We fight for them. We fight for them. We work hard for them. We wake up early for them. We work late for them. We sacrifice for them. We do everything we can to avoid suffering. The one thing that God intends to use for our transformation into Christ-likeness. Perhaps we ought to ask ourselves this. Do I secretly desire a better life than Jesus had? Well, the second thing that ought to stand out to us in verse 12 here, don't be surprised, he says, and not if trials come upon you, but when, when trials come upon you. This when should challenge us. What do you do? How do you explain a life free of Christian suffering? How do you explain biblically a life free of Christian suffering? What do you do with passages like 1 Peter 4.12 or 2 Timothy 3.12 where he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. How do we reconcile those things with a life of ease, with a lack of suffering? When, when, he says, trials come. It's a reality for us. We may try to downplay our suffering or, ge- or desperately try to avoid it, but suffering is part and, part, of the cri- part and parcel of the Christian life. We suffer like Christ because we've been united to Christ and we participate with Him in His suffering. And that means we have to face suffering the way Christ did. Think about Jesus' great prayer in John 12, 27 and 28. He admits that suffering is hard. He says, my soul is troubled. It's difficult to walk in this fallen world in a holy way, to commit yourself completely to God and obedience to Him in light of the fact that other people will malign you and mock you and be surprised by your behavior. It's difficult. My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Was that Jesus' prayer? Oh, Lord, give me an easy time of it. No, He says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name in my suffering, in my experience of suffering. Peter doesn't downplay the reality and magnitude of suffering. Scripture doesn't downplay the reality and magnitude of your suffering, but it does tell you that it's real and you should expect it in Christ. Christian suffering is real for us, and we need to come to grips with that. On the front end, as one theologian said, it's difficult to develop a theology of suffering after the fact. You need to put on your equipment before you step into the burning building, in other words. But there's not just a reality of it, there's a rationale behind it. It's a rationale behind our trials and suffering. Standing behind all of our difficulties, all of our trials, all of our pain, is the smiling providence of a heavenly Father who will never cause us to suffer needlessly. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad 
when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted, verse 14, for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God dwells with you. Doesn't it amaze you how little Christians are willing to endure to be made more holy and more like Christ? Peter says that when fiery trials come, it's for a purpose, and the purpose is that we might be tested in our faith, that we might be glad when Christ returns, and that we might be blessed by the Spirit of God resting upon us. Are you willing to endure trials and suffering for those realities in your life? That your faith might be tested and proven, not to God, He knows what's in your heart, but to you, that you may have confidence at His return in order to rejoice and be glad when He does return and not shrink back in concern that maybe I got this whole thing wrong. And He promises to give His Spirit to those who experience suffering like His Son. In other words, suffering as a Christian has as its goal the present sanctification and future glorification of God's children. He says, we'll be tested, tested, tested like metal. The Bible uses this idea of testing like precious metals repeatedly, that as they go through the fire, the impurities are burned off, they rise to the surface, and they're scraped off, and the purity of the metal is proven. There's an interesting illustration that came to my mind. I had a friend from many, many years ago uh, who was a master welder, which is a pretty high level of achievement. It's difficult to attain. He didn't just do welding. He wasn't in his garage, you know, making fenders for his old pickup truck. He was a master welder. And part of the test that he had to go through in order to be certified, they took a section of metal beam, if I remember correctly, it was an I-beam, and they cut out like a 12-inch wide, 6-inch deep section of it. And he just had to lay weld and fill this thing back in, this whole gap. And then they cut it in half and examined it visually for gaps. And then they x-rayed it to see if there was any uh, faults in it, any uh, flaws in his welding work. And it had to be perfect in order for him to be a master welder. And that gave him the ability to work in areas that other welders can't work. He would go up on high-rise buildings and the structure as they build the framework with metal beams and so forth for these 20, 30-story tall buildings. It also, now he didn't do this, but it also enabled him to work on submarines. The U.S. Navy will not allow anyone to weld on a submarine who is not a certified master welder because lives are at stake. This is the sort of idea that our faith is tested like that. It's put through the x-ray machine of fiery trial that we can see the flaws in it, the weaknesses in it, the gaps in it, And then be reminded that God has given us his spirit to fill those gaps, to strengthen us, to give us endurance and character and hope, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And we'll be glad when Christ returns, the text tells us. Isn't that interesting? Those who experience fiery trials in this life are those who will be glad when Jesus returns, not just because the fiery trials are over, you see, But because when he returns, we rejoice that we know that we have participated with Christ. We have union with Christ. And the evidence of it, the fruit of it, has been revealed to us in the middle of our difficulties. And so for the Christian, we not only shouldn't be surprised, we should long for the opportunity to be proven as those who are in Christ. You know, an athlete trains in order to win the prize. 
An athlete trains in order to run the race in order to be proven at the end as having done all that he was supposed to do in preparation. And the Christian suffering is not random. It's according to the will of God for our growth and godliness, for our conformity to Christ's image. And it's not wasted either. I remember in my days in seminary, some of you here, some of you here particularly are really good with languages. There are people who pick up languages with no problem whatsoever. They just read them and study them and they get them. And some of you are here among us and the rest of us won't admit how we really feel about you. But, you know, there are people online who make a living out of this. They'll, they'll spend like a month learning a foreign language and they're so adept at this that they'll travel to another country and just walk around conversing with people in their own native language and it's a shock to everybody, you know. It's pretty fascinating to watch. But for the rest of us, we have to kind of slog through learning other languages. And I remember my time in seminary learning, and even in my undergrad, learning Hebrew and Greek and going through all of the rigor of turning flashcards and learning declensions and learning different conjugations and learning how this word works here and how to interpret that and parse that there and going through this process. And I remember thinking to myself on a number of occasions, you know, Google knows all this stuff. Um, but I, do, I remember distinctly reading, uh, and I wish I could remember who it was that wrote it, but there's a little book, I think it's John Currid who wrote a book on John Calvin on the original languages. And he talks about the needfulness to learn the languages in order to be sure that you're faithfully dividing the word of truth for God's people. And all of a sudden a goal was put before me. And the goal wasn't translate this and get a grade, And the goal wasn't master this and get done with the class. The goal was faithfully tend God's people with his word. And that makes a difference. The rationale behind the work gives you encouragement. And then having completed the work gives you confidence in the day of trial, doesn't it? Do we trust God's purpose in our suffering? It's easy now here to say that we do. But when the trials come, do we have confidence that the one who is sovereign over our trials has a plan, that he intends to use it for our good and his glory? Are we able to say with the hymn writer, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply? Do we know that, God? Are we confident in him? Peter wants us to see that our suffering is intentional that it purifies and proves our faith, that it enables us to be glad and rejoice at Christ's return, and it brings blessing to us. And so we suffer as Christians expectantly, not surprised, but hopeful, and with an awareness of the rationale behind God's intention in our trials. And because of these things, we're able to rejoice. We're able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Did you know that there are people alive in our world who pay money for other people to torture them. Now, the technical term for this is spin class. (laughs) There are people who pay good money to have some sadistic person yell at them while they ride on a bicycle that doesn't move. Now, there's a reason people go through that. If you want to have extreme cardio health, weight loss benefits, and to know that you can handle the CIA's highest levels of interrogation techniques, 
you sign up for spin class. But you take some joy in it, don't you? Not sadistically, but because there's a goal in mind, and this is the process by which that goal that you have laid a hold of is achieved. That goal that you've put before you is achieved through this difficulty. And so even unbelievers understand what it means to find joy in suffering, but it's different in the Christian life. If you want to be a fit person, you sign up for spin class, and you rejoice in the sweat because you know it's the process. And if you want to be like Christ, you sign up for suffering in this life because you know that it leads to the glorification of the next life. God intends for all of his adopted children to be make, made like his son through suffering. And we know, because of what Scripture tells us, that the sufferings we experience in this life are, are light and momentary. Now, please don't mistake me. For many of you who are presently in the midst of a season of suffering and trial, it doesn't feel light, does it? And it certainly doesn't feel momentary after years and years and years and years, does it? We're speaking here on a cosmic scale. It's light in light of the eternal weight of glory to be revealed. It's momentary in light of the scope of eternity in which we're going to live. But hear this. We don't rejoice because our suffering is light and momentary. We rejoice because God uses it to make us like his son. Don't ever think... I'm going to rejoice because this trial might be over really soon. Because what if it's not? What do you do then with your rejoicing? What do you do then a year or two or five or ten years later? What do you do when the suffering that you're enduring actually costs you your life? We don't rejoice that it's light. We don't rejoice that it's momentary. We grieve that it's heavy. We, we deal really and truly with the realities of difficulties. Peter doesn't sugarcoat it. He says it's a fiery trial that you're going to experience in this life. Suffering is actually hard. The Bible doesn't pretend that it's not. We don't rejoice because it's easy, because it's light and momentary, but because it's intentional and God uses it to make us like his son. Do you want to be really fit? You deal with spin class. Do you actually want to be like Jesus? You endure suffering with rejoicing. You see, God works upon the soul that hungers and thirsts for Christ by allowing it to be hungry and thirsty for things that this life cannot satisfy. And God works upon the soul that longs for heaven by allowing it to find no satisfaction here on earth. And sometimes the thing that makes us find no satisfaction here on earth is the difficulties of life in a fallen world. One Puritan said that it's sad beyond expression that when trials come, we only use them to vent our dissatisfaction with God's plan and purpose, to give full expression to the atheism which really resides in our hearts. Rather, as Christians, we should march through trials with songs of rejoicing on our lips, looking always to Christ rather than down to the circumstances that are before us. We look to the one who rules over them and who uses them for us. The Bible is replete with reminders that we're supposed to rejoice in the midst of trials. Paul, in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that it produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, which doesn't put us to shame because 
the love of God has been shed abroad by the Spirit in our hearts. He says in Philippians 2, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. James tells us to count it all joy when we experience trials because we know that the testing of our faith, same thing Peter's talking about, produces steadfastness. Rejoice in suffering. We sang a song earlier today, our song of adoration, My Heart is Still Filled with Thankfulness. And I watched you all sing it. You watched me sing it. I was looking at you singing it. Listen to the third verse, which we all just confessed together aloud to one another with our lips. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who reigns above, whose wisdom is my perfect peace. Whoa, hold on. You mean his wisdom even when my life's going bad? Is that wise or has he lost control? His wisdom is my perfect peace, whose every thought is love. Every one of God's thoughts towards you is love. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you're suffering? For every day I have on earth is given by the king. So I will give, hold on, we all said this to each other. So I will give my life, my all to love and follow him. Christ says, if you want to live godly lives in this world, in Christ Jesus, you will experience persecution. He says, count the cost and then take up the cross and follow me. Suffering is a reality for the Christian. Suffering is used by God intentionally. There's a rationale behind it, and this enables us to rejoice in it. And while this passage brings great comfort to us in the middle of our difficulties and in light of a fallen world, it also challenges us to self-examination, to ask the question, am I suffering for the right reasons? There are plenty of people who suffer for the wrong reasons, even Christians, who lament the suffering that they experience and the malignment that they endure and the uh, difficulties that they go through, all the while failing to acknowledge that it's their own sin and foolishness that's caused those trials. Look at verses 15 through 18 again with me. Peter says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's using that term as a title there, as a Christian, as one who follows Christ, let him not be ashamed. So don't be ashamed if you're suffering because you follow Christ. Let him glorify God in that name. But don't suffer as a Christian, which a lot of people do. A lot of us Christians, especially in this day of technology and, and uh, online battles between uh, different factions in the church and between the church and the world, many Christians assume that the difficulties they experience in those spheres are due to their faith, when in reality they're just often due to the fact that they're kind of unkind in that environment. Or they're sinful, or they're uncharitable, or they're angry and bitter. It'd be interesting to me to do a survey of the uh, online blogs, of every online self-professed Christian blog of the last 10 years, and see how many of them are written with a spirit of gentleness and encouragement and love, and how many of them are written with a spirit of anger and malice and hate and with the goal of tearing down. Peter says there are bad reasons for suffering. 
And he covers the spectrum. Now, this is interesting with just a couple of words. He says, don't suffer as being a murderer. And most of us are like, yeah, I'm not, I don't murder. I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not suffering for that. Or as a thief, okay, I don't steal. I'm not suffering. Or as an evildoer, that's kind of all-encompassing, right? And so evil sounds pretty harsh. I'm not an evildoer. Or as a busybody. What? How is he, how does it, where, how, where does that fit in? He says, don't be, a, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. You know what a meddler is? It's someone who puts their nose in other people's business. That's all it means. A busybody, a nosy person, a gossip, the sort of person who goes around wagging their finger at everybody else and telling them how to live their lives. Do you think Peter had insight into the way Christians would complain or the reasons Christians would complain for their suffering? All I'm doing is trying to tell everybody what to do with their lives. And I suffer for it. And Peter highlights this for a good reason. So much is wrapped up in these few words. Of course most of us aren't murderers. I I kind of presume that none of us are. Thieves, evildoers, but meddlers just sticking our nose where it doesn't belong being unkind and uncharitable towards other people. This is where our larger catechism is really helpful. I just want to give you a brief glimpse into what our larger catechism describes as the sins of this commandment, of murder. What are the sins uh, that are under the umbrella of murder? Anger, injustice, hatred, envy, the desire of revenge, It says this, the immoderate use of food and drink and recreation, covetousness, these are all things that are wrapped up under these few words. Peter says, don't, this is what he's been saying since the beginning of the chapter, isn't it? Don't do what you used to do when you were part of the world. They should be surprised by the way you act. If they're not, you can count on the fact that you're not going to suffer because you're going to look just like them. Don't be surprised when you do suffer because you've set yourself apart from these things. Don't suffer for doing the things that the world does. Suffer for your relationship to Christ, he says. It's a call to be Christ-like in all areas of our lives so that the suffering we endure would be to the glory of God, not to the shame of his people who wear his name, but to the glory of God. Now, verses 17 and 18, we have to deal with this, uh, might trouble you. Uh, What does he mean here? He says, for it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Then he has this quote from the Proverbs, that the righteous one is scarcely saved or saved through difficulty, through trial, literally. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter here is shifting his focus from the individual Christian to the household of God. And we know that the church in this age will always be made up of both wheat and tares, of both sheep and goats, of Christians and non-Christians. There will be plenty of people who faithfully attended worship and read their Bibles every day who will come to Jesus on that last day and say, Lord, Lord, look at my faithful attendance record. Look at how much I tithe. Look at all the things I did. And Jesus will say, get away from me. You never knew me and I never knew you. The church will always be made up of both. And so Peter here is reminding us that God is going to purify his church by exposing the false believers within her through suffering, through trial, through difficulty. His judgment 
begins in the church where the sheep and the goats are separated, when the difficulties come and those who are enabled to rejoice in suffering, to endure in suffering, to demonstrate hope in suffering, are those who are participating with Christ in his suffering, whereas those who are there for the wrong reasons, for themselves alone, are the first to depart when difficulty comes. I imagine there are very few false Christians risking their lives to attend worship at underground churches throughout the Middle East and parts of Asia. The ones who don't love Christ and desire to be conformed to His image and experience the suffering that the rest of them are enduring, they've got no reason to be there. When the Lord purifies His church, the judgment begins with the household of God in order to show evidence of our participation with and union to Christ in the midst of our difficulties. It's a sober warning that God's judgment is not to be taken lightly. If He's going to judge all people and He'll begin with His own household, how much worse will it be for those who openly reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? There are people who think they understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, who attend Christian worship faithfully, who read their Bibles, and yet continue to rely on themselves and their own righteousness for their salvation. And Jesus will say, even to them, get away from me, I didn't know you. What will be the outcome for those who openly and willfully spurn his offer of salvation in Jesus Christ alone? It's a warning. It's a warning. Our, think about this for a second, Christians, our suffering is not only designed to conform us to Christ, it's designed to serve as a warning to those who reject Him. Our suffering serves as a warning to those who reject Christ. His own people experience suffering in this life in order to be conformed to His Son's image that we might rejoice and be glad in the revelation of his glory in which we will also share, how much worse will it be for those who reject the opportunity to suffer in this life, to be united to Christ in this life, when the next life comes? Eternal wrath, eternal separation, no glory, no love, no forgiveness. The suffering that you and I may experience in this life, the pains of rejection from family and friends, the difficulty of sickness and sin and decay, the stench of death will all account as nothing in light of the eternal suffering that those who reject Jesus Christ must experience because God is holy and we are not. It's a call to trust Christ. One last thing from this text. Look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. What sets Christian suffering apart from the world's? Look, there are many people, all people endure suffering. Some people accept the burden of suffering for a reason that they might experience a better life now that they might be changed into a better version of themselves they even rejoice in spin class that they might be fit and strong and healthy they might even 
suffer for legitimately good reasons, for moral uprightness and for standing by the truth. But only the Christian can rest in their suffering because we know that our faithful creator intends it for our good. Only the Christian can rest truly in suffering. Our creator knows that we are but dust. Isn't it interesting that Peter doesn't call him our father in heaven or some other term that's used throughout the New Testament? He refers to him as our creator. He's the one that made us, that formed us in the womb. He knows our frame. He knows how much we can handle. He knows that we're but dust. And so when he sends trials our way, he thinks of us in those terms. He never gives us more than we can handle because the one who rules sovereignly over our circumstances remembers our frame. Are you suffering in this life as a Christian? There are promises in this text for you. There are promises here for you. Notice that Peter does not say, therefore let those who suffer faithfully according to God's will entrust themselves to their creator. He says, notice those who suffer according to God's wills, God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. The question is never, am I being faithful enough in the midst of this suffering? The answer is always, God will be faithful in the midst of my suffering. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? We simply bear witness to Christ's glory in our suffering. It is God who is faithful to us. He remains faithful as our creator. We then can have blessed assurance in the midst of any trial or difficulty that he will never forsake or abandon us, that he will be faithful to his people in the midst of his all. He already poured out his wrath on his son. He already gave Jesus all the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Whatever suffering we experience as Christians in this life pales in comparison to the suffering we deserve for our sin. But God is faithful to his people and will always be. And we know this uniquely. Don't be surprised. Rejoice in the midst of suffering. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator who loves you. And long to be conformed to the image of his son, knowing that he uses such difficulties to accomplish his perfect will for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you <coughs> cause and enable us even to endure suffering for the sake of Christ, for the sake of our being conformed into his image, that we might be more like him, that we might extol his glory even in the darkest night of our soul. Never losing confidence in you, our creator, who remains faithful and trusting ourselves to you, knowing that the end of our suffering is the eternal glory of life in heaven with you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.